The talk you're about to hear is by a senior student at the Auckland Zen Centre. Well, this um, talk, which somebody the other day said would be a TED talk, um, but there's two sort of um, themes going through it, I, I guess, through my life. One is karma, karmic influences. Um, some people say coincidences, but I reckon a coincidence is just simply karma's way of remaining anonymous. And the other thing is threes. Everything seemed to happen to me in threes. Can everybody hear me, by the way? Yep. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Good. Anyway, back to basics. Um, I was born 1942 in Liverpool. That's the Liverpool, not in the Australian one, but the one in the north country of the UK on the Merseyside. Um, for low economic family, I guess my father was a sorting clerk at the post office. My mother used to eke her income by teaching the piano. Um, she taught me the piano. Um, I was born during the war, the Second World War, so that for five years I was in, yeah, through the war, which had a great influence on me and my thinking and my spiritual journey for the rest of my life actually. I don't really remember the war itself because I was only up until five years old but I remember the aftermath which lasted right through until my teens. Liverpool was the most heavily bombed town in the whole of the British Isles more than Coventry or London um, because it was the port that was on the, the lifeline to the States and Canada I guess. Um, so when I grew up it was bomb sites everywhere, in fact our playgrounds were bomb sites, food was scarce, we were on rations until I was the age of 12, Could, couldn't get any decent food and all this, uh, and there was unemployment everywhere, massive, well it was uh, abject poverty because all the, all the industry had been destroyed. And uh, this was aggravated by the Irish problem because between 1844 and 1850 there was a massive immigration of Irish because of the potato famine into Liverpool and they settled in Liverpool more than there were people in Liverpool originally. Of course there's no jobs for them so you can imagine that and the war, what the poverty was like. Um, also too the Irish brought with them um, the troubles. Catholic, Protestant. Liverpool was 50-50 and this was the religion. Everybody was either Catholic or Protestant. The schools were completely segregated. They, not like here where, where they're separate schools but they're part of the same cur curriculum. They're each 
that you had your own curriculum and you'd be taught, you know, what a right load of people the other lot were and things. It was, and there was animosity, violence. I saw some really horrible uh, violence between Catholics and Protestants. Um, yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I was brought up a Protestant, went to Sunday school, um, actually did a scripture exam and I was the first person to get 100% marks, so I knew my Bible, but when I looked at it I found that um, I sort of disagreed with a, a lot of the teachers. To me, the basic teaching of, uh, of Jesus was pacifism and socialism, which I guess they were um, encouraged by the fact the environment around me, the war and the, the poverty. In fact, um, I made friends when I was a preschooler with a couple of lads who were Catholics. And I remember even my mother saying to me, you know, those O'Neill boys, they're nice boys, aren't they? Even though they are Catholics. Um, that was the sort of attitude around. So I, I just hated this Catholic Protestant fighting and animosity. So, yeah. But when I, I looked around and those te Jesus teachings of pacifism and socialism, I couldn't see any of the churches practicing it. So I grew up as a staunch Christian, but as I used to say, I'm into Christianity, but not churchianity. Um, anyway, um, the first karmic seed for my path, I guess, I, I didn't realize it was, there was going to be Buddhist seeds later, but anyway, was getting out of the, this urban ghetto and I was given a book by some ants and with, I think this karma comes in here because they always, these two aged ants used to always give me a brand new book on my birthday. But this one year, when I was about eight, nine or ten, I think nine, about 1950, they gave me a book that was, they'd had in their possession for 20 years. It was printed in 1932. It was uh, Bevis by um, an English naturalist called, um, uh, yeah, um, oh, gee, uh, Richard, um, it's Bevis by Richard Jeffries. I, I don't know if anybody know of him. But anyway, th th that book was all about a couple of lads, 12-year-olds, who sort of sneaked away from home and built a, a raft and sailed across to an island and a lake near them. It actually exists, that place, so we think it's partly autobiography. But they got away from everywhere by be living out in the countryside, building their own little shelters you know the hunting rabbits and all this and that really made a big impression on me i thought gee that's what i want to do i want to get out of this urban ghetto and get into the countryside so i joined the cubs because well it was before the scouts i wasn't old enough um and then yeah i met another friend there from another street and um we had to change troop because that most of the, the scout troops were sort of sponsored by churches and of course the churches were all into this interdenominational animosity so it was finally by moving from one scout to the other, the come back to threes, it was the third scout troop that I found that was halfway decent. It, 
it was completely divorced from the churches but it was I met a lot of lads who were right out there in the out in the open air we went you know we used to go rock climbing mountaineering and that sort of thing and then this is where I got into Buddhism thing um, we all had to do a project for a badge and as one chap Frank he shows us his project it was um, dehydrated foods which was just coming into existence and that um, and, but anyway he lost his hair through alopecia complete baldy head he had to wear a wig anyway we were taking the mickey out of him saying oh you're a buddhist monk buddhist monk um, we, we didn't know what a buddhist monk was but you know he, he had a baldy head anyway what one day he said to me look he said you keep calling me this but what is a buddhist what does buddhism what do they do what, do, what does it mean I says, I don't know, I haven't a clue, except they've got baldy heads like you. So, he, he said, so I said, anyway, to pacify him, I said, look, I'll find out. And then the, the other lad said, hey, that could be your project, study Buddhism. So, oh, okay. So, this is in the 1950s, and there's just nothing in Britain about Buddhism at all. Um, but, um, so look, I went along to the local library, or the main library, Anyway, I got again three comes into three sources for my project. Um, the first was a book in the library by a German guy called Georg Grimm. I don't know if anybody knows of him. I, no, nobody seems to know of him. But anyway, he he, his, he was uh, his was book was based on the four noble truths. Um, except he he kept referring all the way through his book to the German philosopher Schopenhauer who I didn't know at the time anyway. Um, the second resource was the library did find one group in, in the UK that was a Buddhist group and that was Christmas Humphreys crowd in London, the London Buddhist Society. I thought at the time what a funny name Christmas Humphreys for a Buddhist but never mind. <laughs> I wrote to them and got yeah I got information from them and my third resource though was um, I saw a, an article in a paper two Buddhist monks had come from Ceylon but Sri Lanka is called now it was known as Ceylon then and was staying for a few weeks at the, um, the Ceylon High Commission so I wrote to them actually they were the best of the lot really um, they sent me some little pamphlets and things um, except a lot of it was in sort of second language English if you know what I mean except they did send me um, I've always kept it um, a copy of the Metta Sutta in Pali and English on the other side anyway with those resources I set to and did this project um, which I've still got it and um, I think for, for it's a young boy scout with miniature resources um, it's, that's quite substantial really isn't it <laughs> quite amazing um, I remember that the lads went and gave this to an archdeacon at the, uh, the cathedral to have a look at and um, yeah we, we had some talks uh, we, we didn't agree eye to eye on what was Christianity of course um, I mean he came from the upper classes so he objected to my socialism and wasn't very pacifist in fact he said um, what has he said um, uh, I showed that you, you I said, yeah, he's got a, a pretty abysmal ignorance of, of, um, of 
Christianity, especially Thomas Aquinas or Aquinas, um, when he says an abysmal ignorance, of, what he means is an abysmal ignorance of what I call churchianity. But anyway, he did say, I think this is a, uh, he's really worked hard on this project, and I myself have learned quite a lot. Um, a very original project and a very good effort, so he's a bit magnanimous. Anyway, I did go into the library and look up this guy, Aquinas, Aquinas and I found in, in, in the list, in the, um, the front, the contents, that he actually supported that you could have a just war. So I thought, right, this guy's not even a Christian, so I threw the, that book away and never have read Aquinas. Anyway, because um, I was, I'm, you know, pacifism, because of my experience of the war, was, was just basic to any teaching. Anyway, um, that Buddhist project stayed in, well, I guess it sank into the Alaya Vijnana, my subconsciousness. I obviously from the comments here, sort of took it favourably when compared to, say, you know, Christian, well, churchianity, Christianity. But I, I didn't sort of practice Buddhism or anything then, sort of forgot about it for a while. Anyway, come a lot, many years later, in the 1920s, when I was 20 year old, I mean, um, I went on a, wandering around the world, it took two and a half years to hitchhike around the place, through the Middle East, um, Turkey, Afghanistan, a lot. Um, what amazed me was everywhere you got organised religion, organised religion, you got fighting as a war. Amazing, you know, Jews and Arabs, I was there during the Six Year War. Uh, and then when I got into India, I found the Sikhs were having a, a big punch up because they wanted their own independent state. However, anyway, I did manage to get some climbing in India, which is good. But anyway, uh, through the Southeast Asia, I ended up in Australia, where I spent another year wandering around Australia, just hitchhiking around. Do you know that there was only one day during that year I was in Australia when it didn't rain? When it actually rained, I mean. Only one day in the year it rained there. Amazing. But anyway, um, I bumped into a chap in Sydney who I'd worked with in Liverpool years ago. See, this is karma coming in here. And he invited me back to New Zealand, which I thought, oh, gee, I don't know. I haven't got much money. And he said he worked for the shipping company. He could wangle me a cheap berth across. So I came over to New Zealand for a temporary visit. And here I am 60 odd years later on my temporary visit. But um, yeah, I got married here and we went we spent another year wandering around the world, but in, it was in the Lake District of the North Country. Um, one Sunday morning, met, my wife wanted to go to Anglican churches, and you can imagine how what well I thought about that one. But I saw a Quaker meeting house, an old one from 1600s, and I remember from ages ago that I was to told once that there were only two Christian denominations that are pacifist. And that was the Mennonites with the subgroup, the Amish, who I thought were well, a little bit weird. But, and the Quakers, who I thought were fundamentalists at the time. But anyway, I, th I said to her that day, oh, look, I don't want to go to this Anglican, Let let's go to this Quaker meeting. So we went to the Quaker meeting house and that was great. It was a whole hour of silence. 
as everybody just sat in group meditation for the, the time. Uh, and then afterwards got talking to them and yes, they were definitely pro-peace and that. So anyway, when we got back to New Zealand, I joined the Quakers. Um, I was, um, got really involved with them. Um, I liked the, their meetings of silent meetings. We just uh, sitting in meditation as it were. Um, and this pacifism and their social justice ideas, because I got got onto their peace committee, and, and then the Vietnam War came in, so there was a lot of organising uh, uh, protests about that. Springbok tour came up, and we we brought out George Lakey, a non-violent activist from the states, to, um, to help out with the protests to try and keep them non-violent. The protests against the Springbok tour. Met Tom Newnham there um, from the Citizens Association of Racial Equality, joined them, got on their committee, and yeah, I was heavily involved in the protests about the Springbok talk. But um, there's one thing that worried me about the Quakers. Yeah, they were great, their meditation sessions, their pacifism, their social justice. But um, as one of them said to me, you know, our theology is quite woolly. Yeah, they had no teachings, no sort of... Everybody could just believe what they wanted. In fact, there's people in the Quakers from almost evangelical Christian type people right through to... Well, there's a couple of people last year in the Quakers who uh, were members, I found, were members of the Tiratna, you know, Western Buddhist order. And you've got Arthur Wells down in Christchurch who's a prominent member of the Diamond Sangha. Sen Sangha. Um, anyway, um, one thing I got involved in here is music. Again, three teachers here. My mother was my first teacher. Um, and um, oh, yeah, that, just to backtrack a little, at school, one thing that helped me out of the ghetto as well as the scouts was going to school. I went, I was the only one in the street that got the 11 plus exam, so I was. I was sent to a school that was three miles away and um, met a totally different set of guys but I think this is calmer again because everybody in our class was into music except we were divided into factions. There was Macca, um, Paul McCartney of course, Beatle fame, he was, there was his group and there was another fellow who was into classical music and which I was originally and then the, another guy was into jazz and he got me into jazz by because I went to a Sydney Bechet concert and so I f we formed, some of us formed a jazz group. So that was great because I got out the ghetto by, during the weekdays I was in with the school lads playing jazz and during the weekend I was off with the scouts climbing mountains. In fact I even changed my name, I was known as Malcolm, my first name up to then. But I, when I cut with the, the local lads I changed, I said no, I want to be known by my middle name Ted. And, that's it. But anyway, when I came coming back to New Zealand, when I got to New Zealand, um, I had lip embouchure problems. In fact, my lips were par paralysed due to being self-taught, wrong embouchure. So my, my mother was my first teacher of music, and then I found a teacher here in New Zealand, a Dutch lady, she taught me mandolin. And then another guy, Eugene, he taught me the bazooki. He was from the Symphonia, but he formed a group 
um, we're playing ethnic music, you know, a lot of Balkan music, Greek, uh, etc. And then we got in with some dancers who were into all ethnic dancing, from Cossack dancing, Polish dancing, the lot. And um, we did a trip around the North Island, and I was in the Bay of Islands one day, and we'd done quite a lot that day. And in the evening, I went out and it just, there was a beautiful night and just looking at the stars up there and in the infinity and suddenly, I don't know, mine just, yeah, wow. Those of you, if you remember, Sensei had us once pacing out all the, the, the um, planets, you know, from here down to the lagoon and had us looking at the constellation of stars. You might know what I'm getting out here when it, it, you know, something and suddenly then I thought of, oh, I remembered this Buddhist project that I did, you know, as a lad. And so I got this and I thought, wow, that's the missing element that, from the, that I was missing with the Quakers. So I was working for the Daily Board at Dominion Road and round the corner was then Dorji Chang, the Tibetan Galugpa Buddhist. So I popped in there one lunch hour. Actually, I met a Tibetan Lama fellow there. And he, he played flute and um, we got talking and he... So we, we ended up, I ended up learning a lot of t um, Tibetan music with him and playing with my mazuki, which he thought resembled a Tibetan instrument. But as for Tibetan Buddhism, no, nah, it's too much. You know, I, I, but I saw some pamphlets there and leaflets and read them, and it had about Zen, because I didn't know much about Zen. My project had never really touched on it, and Zen, direct pointing, you know, beyond words and letters. I thought, wow, yeah, this is it. This is sort of a Quaker approach to Buddhism. That's better than this than Tibetan. That's what I want to be in. But I found that the the group here had gone out of existence because they used to bring out Sasaki Roshi, but he, his health had deteriorated. And so everybody in New Zealand had all gone off to the States, to Mount Baldy, to be with Sasaki. And so the, the group had folded up. So I thought, well, what do I do? Where do I find a Zen group? And then I remembered from my project that I had correspondence with the, you know, the Christmas Humphreys crowd in London. So I wrote to them and found that they were doing um, a correspondence course in Zen. So I thought, yeah, so I did that correspondence course then, which, well, it was good for me at the time, I think. Um, although I found that the chap that I was corresponding with at the other end um, wasn't really a, like a Roshi or a sensei, a teacher as such. He was, I thought he was just like a fellow traveller on the path like me, but maybe a few steps ahead, but that was it. But it was good for the time. But I thought, I need to find a Roshi, a sensei, a teacher. Anyway, looking through the international records at Doji Chang, um, I found that the nearest Zen Roshi was in Hawaii. That was Robert Aiken Roshi. So I thought, right. So I sat down and wrote a letter to Robert Aiken Roshi, Hawaii, and sent it off, and got a reply back. And yeah, this started a lot of correspondence I had with him. Um, yeah, um, 
you know everything's in threes again and here I always think of I've got I've had three Zen teachers and I put Aiken Roshi as my first teacher I never met him and I never spoke to him it was entirely by correspondence but that was beneficial yeah I was going to do session with him he, he went to Sydney every so often um, and I actually booked there but unfortunately his health deteriorated and so he stopped going overseas so I never managed to actually get to see him but but what he did do was he sent me his book and everything's in threes and I've got three books here that were the three most beneficial books to me and this the first one is yeah taking the path of Zen by Robert Aitken Roshi um, yeah and that really was a big influence for me that terrific book I thought that was um, it, he's actually wrote, signed it in the front so I could probably get a few bob if I ever want to sell it although yeah but no no it's, it means a lot to me that book that was the first you know real Zen book anyway um, but obviously his health had deteriorated he wasn't going to come out here or Australia and then Doji Chang said yeah we're going to have some Zen meetings on a Friday we've got a New Zealand chap Stacy Krauss who'd gone to Korea and had been in a, a monastery over there for seven years he's now back here and he's going to give talks on the Diamond Sangha that was Hamwall um, now with my Aiken stuff that would be 1978 I think Hamwell would be 1979 when we there'd be about three or four of us used to turn up and he gave a, yeah, a talk every Friday after sitting for a while I've, I've got copies of his uh, his talks he, he gave me them it must be about an inch and a half thick actually if anybody ever wants to look at them but he gave me book number two my Zen book number two and that was um, Nine Mountains by his Zeon master in Master Kusan Teisho and talks by Kusan master, uh, and between those two books yeah I thought they were good they how can I explain it was like looking at a statue the same statue this one's looking at it from this side and this one's looking at it from that side so different sort of from the same statue but it's yeah so they were my to send books um, we couldn't bring Kusan out so we still needed a teacher here and, and then Kate Adams turned up some of you might know Kate Adams she's now living in Waiheke Island but she'd been in correspondence with Mike Radford one of the original guys who'd been with Sasaki Roshi and had gone off to Mount Baldy Monastery with him in the States and she came along and said I've been in correspondence with Mike and I think we can get Sasaki Roshi, the Japanese master out here for a session. Are you interested in helping organize it? Yeah, fine, that's great. So 1981, yeah, we brought Joshu Sasaki Roshi. He was a Japanese master, but it was then living in the States, Mount Baldy, California. And so we brought him out for session. I always remember that first session, it was at 
what's now Belarac, but it was called Nocnagri, it was a Catholic retreat centre at that time. Um, uh, you know, what was first session? Uh, well, I, I'd had no experience before it, so um, it was like, yeah, going along to an Olympic swimming pool and diving in at the deep end when you've never had a swimming lesson. Um, I know it really hammered my knees because um, I used to sit in lo full lotus position those days. I can't now because of arthritis, only half lotus, but I remember that was, but that was a really good session. Um, every time I went for Doksan, Sasaki would say to me, no thinking, no thinking, no thinking, or at least sinking, he, he had an accent, no sinking, no sinking. Um, I was my one, one day, we had a, a Japanese professor at the university used to come to translate for him because he always gave his Taisho in Japanese because he, well, he was scared of wrong you know, English. But anyway, one day the, the chap's car w w wouldn't start, it was after the Taisho, so I was busy oh, pull, pushing and pushing his car to try and get it started. This was the Ayawira, this one. Anyway, ooh, eventually I got, got, the, got his car started, that was it. Anyway, later on in the afternoon, went into Doksan and Sasaki looked at me and says, how do you experience Buddha nature? While pushing car! <laughs> no sinking, no sinking. Um, actually, there is the other story. I think it was Kate, funny, um, went, went, to, went to see him once and um, he said to her, Remember Jesus, remember Jesus, when he walked on the water, no sinking, no sinking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we brought the Sasaki out, 1981, and then another second session in 1982, and then a third session in 1983, but then his health deteriorated. It seemed to be a common factor here, maybe karma's got some funny ways here and so that was it well by then we we formed the Zen Society in New Zealand I was first secretary and first editor of the newsletter and we but we had about 20-25 people coming along to our Sunday mornings but when Sasaki stopped coming here Mike and a lot of other people all then went off back to the States over there and other people started dropping out. I always remember writing an article for the Sydney people that I'd kept in touch with and saying, you know, if you haven't got a Rashi, you haven't got a Sensei, if there's no teacher, then things will just fade away. And that's what happened and until in the end, we, we, by the time we were sitting at the, um, the Teravada place in Mount Wellington and I was the only one turning up for about a month or two hours, nobody else turning up, just me. I was wondering what, what to do. And then a chap turned up once, uh, one morning, got talking to, and that was Jim, Lang Jimon Langabeer, who a lot of you may know. He'd just spent some time over in um, New York State with John Dido Lurie. And so after that sitting, he said to me, well, if you want a Rashi, he says, I think I can get John Dido Luri to come out for session. Are you interested in a, helping me organise? Yep, fine. So we did. And I think the year was 
1988, if my calculations are correct, we brought John Dido Ludi up. And now this is it. My first Zen teacher was Aitken Roshi, my second was Sasaki Roshi, and I thought, Dido Ludi, ah, oh, the third teacher, that's it, the three. But no, it wasn't to be. I, I didn't gel with Dido Ludi, it just didn't click. It happens sometimes, so I'm told. Uh, I was thinking about it the other day and I, I found three, it's always three isn't it, three reasons why that might be. One of them was that I just had a difficult time giving up smoking and Dido Luri still smoked. Um, but more importantly, secondly, uh, I was going through a crisis at work. The Zen industry was being, the uh, dairy industry was being completely reorganised and I was didn't know where it was going to be redundant or whatever. Actually, I came through with it okay in the end, but um, but yeah, that was a crisis on my mind too. And the third reason was my marriage had broken up. My wife, she shot through initially to a Sai Baba ashram in India. I was left with two kids, a daughter of 10 and a son of 12. And so, you know, that was really hard work bringing up those two kids solo. Um, very hard work. In fact, yeah, I'll point out, um, a, a lot of women talk about discrimination against women and solo women, but I found in that, that, that was 1988, uh, I found the opposite because I, ha I had a solo mum who used to come, uh, I gave her lodgings at my place, she had a son, um, on condition that for free, on condition she was there when my daughter came home from school because she was only 10 before I came home from work and she was saying oh it was great every time she went out shopping for her son for son's clothes or sports gear everybody bent over backwards you know the, the shopping people were great the schools were fantastic I found the opposite whenever I went, went out to shopping with my daughter I just got the height of abuse from the, you know the people who were serving in the shops and even the school, the local, one of the local school teachers said to me, you have absolutely no right bringing up children. That's a woman's job, nothing to do with men. Um, so yeah, I found that in those days, actually the discrimination against men was far greater than the discrimination against women. But never mind, got through it. Um, I got involved with my, my daughter's activities. She was into horse riding, he was into yachting. Um, yeah, I ended up district commissioner of the, for the pony clubs in that. Yeah. But um, so I was, it was totally geared into all this sort of stuff that just completely, Zen completely went. I was completely out of it. Um, so I was out of it for, yeah, be 25 years or so, you know, until, yeah. When I retired from work, by then my, daughter, my daughter and son had grown up. They'd gone overseas. My son was in Brisbane, still is. But strange thing is, my daughter was, I was born in the North Country and now live in New Zealand. My daughter was born here in New Zealand and now lives in the North Country, working for Leeds University. I think there's a karmic loop here somewhere, isn't there? I don't know, it just sounds, yeah. Anyway. I had time on my hands now, so what do I do? So I hadn't had, one of the things was physical, so I climbed, 
made a project climbing all the volcanoes, 50 of them in Auckland, so I did that. Education-wise, yeah, never had much of that. How could I be coming from the slums of Liverpool? So, um, but one thing I did, I read every single play of Bill Shakespeare. Yeah, strange thing to do, but I did. But the other one was I'd never had any science education. I was, science was refused to me at school, but the headmaster wouldn't let me do it. So I wanted to develop that. So I was going into the library and getting books out on. What I wanted to learn was quantum physics, quantum mechanics. Um, you know, um, Heisenberg principle, Niels Bohr, Schrodinger and his pussycat and all that stuff. And I found one book, there's a little footnote, and it said there was um, a scientist, a French scientist, Mathieu Ricard, who had become a Buddhist monk. He'd written a book called The Quantum and the Lotus. And suddenly, Karma gave me a kick up the backside and said, Lotus? I'm quantum? Wow, you must get that book. So anyway, I did. And this is my third book. And it really was a book that really made a big impression on me. The Quantum and the Locusts, Lotus by Batu Ricard. And yeah, that's terrific. Um, like one thing, it's sort of the, the interpenetration of the, of the, you know, Avatam Saka, Hua Yen, Gandavyuha thing, you know, equates that with, the, with quantum entanglement and the Bell's theorem and all that, if you know anything about those. I found that terrific. Um, and yeah, it really reinforced all that Buddhist stuff that it all, which I hadn't lost it. It was sunk into the Alaya Vijnana, the subconscious, and especially the, the, three, um, the three signs, you know, um, dukkha, sort of suffering, which I had a lot of that, anicca change, I had a lot of that, and anatman, no self. But that's the tricky one, actually, I found, no self. Because, um, and with this, my three books, the, you know, you can, uh, I found, you can intellectually understand no self, Anatman, but it's there subtly, keeps going, you know. Um, for example, about a month ago, yeah, I remember somebody collecting donations for a children's charity for children who'd been badly injured burns and stuff, you know, and I thought, oh, so I gave a donation and then thought, oh, gee, wasn't that great? I give a donation, you know, and then I thought, bang, I've been sucked into the Emperor Wu syndrome, you know, you know, as he <laughs> spoke with Bodhidharma. And it's subtle, it's there, isn't it, you know? So, and then somebody said to me, you know, when you get things that happen, get a little phrase that you can repeat, repeat to yourself, almost like a mantra, you know, to, to break that. So, um, yeah, so I sat down and I wrote two haiku. Well, I'll apologize to, to Richard right from the word go here. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether you can call these haiku. They, they've got, well, it's, they're three lines of five, seven, five syllables. So, so I'll call it haiku, just in inverted commas anyway, just to, on the self. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you them anyway, <laughs> with us to say apologies over there. Um, here's the first one. 
The self is the froth on top of a Guinness pint. Puff! It's blown away! Um, the second one, that sort of reminds me, because when I was out in the ghetto with the lads before I managed to break away, yeah, that was it. We binge drinking. We used to get into the Guinness them days. But here's um, the next one. The other haiku is is more m music inclined, I suppose. Seeking the ego is like catching melodies by butterfly net. You try doing that. Try catching melodies by butterfly net. So. Anyway, I started sitting Zazen again every day, but I didn't bother trying to find a group. I didn't know that this group existed. To me, I thought, you know, we've tried in the past. Zen groups never, never exist in, in New Zealand. They just fade away. So I was just, I just sat on my own for, what, about a year? And then one evening I was sitting at home, I'd just been sitting so I was then and I was thinking, you know, really, I've got to find other people that are sitting, uh, even if I only find one, one other person, you know, that would be something. I was just thinking on this and the phone rang. I thought, oh, I, I didn't expect anybody. Anyway, I went to the phone and the voice said, you know, is that Ted Smith? Yeah. Was involved with the Zen Society 30 years ago? Yeah. Right, well, yeah. I, my name's Sally Makara, and it was Sally. <laughs> yeah, it was ring me up. What what had happened was it was the tenth anniversary here of Sensei, and Sally was got a project. She was trying to do a history of Zen Buddhism, and so she gone right back and got the old newsletters from thirty years ago, and there was my name and phone number, and um, she was wondering. Uh, you know, well, does this, <laughs> is this phone number still valid, you know, after all these years? Well, I guess karma came out, you know, whilst karma was kicking me up the backside saying, you've got to find somebody, it must have given her a kick up the backside and told her to <laughs> ring. So she rang the, for this number and that was it. So, wow, there's a Zen group, I didn't even know, you know. Anyway, um, I knew of Richard, well, you had met Richard and sensei beforehand way back in Sasaki days but I never knew that they I'd always thought they'd gone to Rochester anyway so sensei then rang me up and asked and invited me to the 10th anniversary concert here see the music tangle here karma's subtle isn't it he uses all these little tricks so I came along and that's it I joined here and I'm back here that's uh, <laughs> um, Actually, yeah, um, a lot of people wonder why I'm wearing a black robe and not a brown one. That's because Sensei did say, you know, rather than get a brown one, I could wear my old black robe from these Sasaki days. So that's the reason. Anyway, so that's it. I'm back home with the... And so I found my third teacher now. We got Aiken, Roshi, Sasaki Roshi, and now Sensei here. So that's it, that's my three teachers. But um, just to finish off though, um, it was this, this um, it was just this year, early on, I um, 
I suddenly had the urge, I think this is karma, give me a kick up the backside again, to read the very original book that got me out the ghetto in Liverpool, you know, this book Bevis by Richard Jeffries. Must read that again. So um, I went to, to the library here. No, this, they couldn't, there's no book. The book had been written in 18, whatever it is, and the, the last time it had ever been printed was 1932. That's why I say it must have been amazing that Karma must have got those hands to give me a book that was that old. But, um, but the, um, they, they did say they found a copy of it in the rare book collection at the um, upstairs at the, what's it, the George Gray collection in the library. It was a rare book, but because it was so rare, they said you can arrange for a day to come on in, but we won't let it out of the library, you can read it here. Yep, yeah, great. So I went along that day to read this book, and they were so apologetic, they'd lost it. Couldn't find it. Oh, what do I do? So anyway, they were so apologetic, they said we'll try and find it. So they tried all the libraries here, couldn't find it. Anyway, after about a week, they rang me and said they found a copy of it. It was in the basement archive of a library in the South Island. So they said, we can get it up for you, which they did. And because they were so embarrassed, they said, we won't, won't even charge you for the, you know, the interloan. There's a five or ten dollar interloan thing. Uh, and they let me have the book. Anyway, so I got the, this book of Bevis and was reading it and then something which I, I, I must have read it and it sunk into the Alayevich Nan, the, you know, the subconsciousness because I didn't remember it openly and it was chapter 35 so I'll, I'll read it because this I reckon was the very first um, the very first thing that started me off on this path and um, okay, it's from a book, Bevis, by Richard Jeffries, written in 1882, uh, chapter 35, and I'll read it, yeah. He, well that's Bevis, could not, as he reclined on the garden path, physically reach to and feel the oak. Yeah, there are three things, I always mention three things. There are three things in this I think bear in mind. One is um, the uh, Mumon Khan uh, uh, the Mumon Khan number 37 or 38 it seems to be um, you know, you know uh, Koan um, the one about uh, um, Joshua and the oak tree the second one was, remember my um, experience with the stars up above in the up in the Bay of Islands. And the third thing is, remember Sasaki Roshi kept telling me to no thinking, no thinking, because uh, yeah, just amazing the way karma works, doesn't it? Here, anyway. Bevis, he could not, as he reclined on the garden path, physically reach to and feel the oak. But he could feel the oak in his mind. And so from the oak, stepping beyond it, he felt the stars. 
By day the sun, as he sat under the oak, was as much by him as the boughs of the great tree. The heavens were as much a part of life as the elms, the oak, the house, the garden, the orchard, the meadow and the brook. They were no more separated than the furniture of the parlour. They were neither above nor beneath. They were in the same place with him. The trees, the constellations and the sun were on a plane with him and he felt he was moving with them as the earth rolled on, like them, with them, in the stream of space. It was living, not thinking. He lived it never thinking. Under the oak that warm summer night, Bevis looked up as he reclined at the white pure light of Lyra, the purest star in the heavens, and forgot everything but the consciousness of living, feeling up to and beyond it. The earth, the water, the oak went away. He himself went away. His mind joined itself and was linked up through ethereal space to its beauty. Bevis did not think. We have done the thinking for him and the analysis for him. He felt and was lost in the larger consciousness of the heavens. Um, amazing, isn't it? That was written in 1882 in by a chap in Britain and I think that's just about yeah comes full circle really that I, I just read that only just recently re or read it as I thought of it but I hadn't I'd first read it for the first time when when uh, you know as a little boy uh, of about I don't know 10 11 or 12 um yeah so with that i said th I, th I think i'll finish on that note that's come full circle and um maybe we can we can just have the four vows
endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the weekend but the next weekend's um, we're doing this little like the second part of Sensei's present is um, all the composters arriving and will be at her place on Saturday morning, in Richard's place, on Saturday morning and on Sunday morning to um, do the garden up and get it all ready before she returns. So if you can plug either of those times in, I think it's 9.30 Saturday morning or 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, um, that'll be great help. Thank you. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.